So I invite you to grab your Bible with me this morning and make your way to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. When you think about your spiritual life, when you think about uh, all that you have experienced, all that you have done, and who you really are, I have a question for you, and that is, what kind of Savior do you need? Uh, What kind of Savior do you and all of your wretched sinfulness need? What kind of spiritual help, what kind of aid do you need? The author of Hebrews is convinced that what weak Christians, what weary Christians need to be reminded of over and over and over in different ways is what kind of Savior they have in Jesus. It's amazing, really. We talked about this a few weeks ago. If you were to sit down with a friend who was struggling in the faith and they were uh, considering giving up Christianity, what would be your counsel to them? And oftentimes our instinct might be to get right at whatever is driving them in their heart, the misplaced worship or the misplaced affections. And appropriate as that would be, and the writer of Hebrews is going to deal with sin issues, what he's actually most concerned about is continually setting forth what kind of Savior we have in Jesus Christ. See, what we can weary Christians need to be reminded of is, is that we have a Savior who is both powerful and he's also gentle. He's the kind of Savior that you and I need. See, if we're dead in sin, then we need a powerful Savior who can give us spiritual life who can come to our aid and is willing to come to our aid when we can't even help ourselves in our helpless state to have compassion and pity on us. He needs to have power in order to grant us new life. As you think about your life in Christ, even as the Lord might have graciously done a work in your life, you've come to salvation, you've come to repentance and faith, you, you love Jesus now, you would say, well, now I, I needed a powerful Savior to save me. Now I need a patient Savior. Because every day, I'm beset by weakness. That's the kind of Savior that I need. I'm prone to failure. Continually. At times, even in surprising ways. Prone to unbelief. Prone to disobedience. Prone to be stiff-necked. Prone to return to old ways of thinking. Prone to sinful fear and sinful lust and sinful anger and sinful discontent. And so when God offers you Jesus Christ, he offers you a Savior who is powerful and a Savior who's patient. He's exactly the kind of Savior that you and I need. And so when you think about why it's such a joy, why is it that I love the Lord's Day? Why do I love to gather with God's people, among other things? Because I get to be reminded of what kind of Savior I have. I need to hear it over and over and over. You do too, week after week after week, what kind of Savior God has given us. It's to the benefit of our souls to reflect on the Savior that God has given us. We find strength for living the Christian life. We find hope. We find encouragement that God has given us just the man that we need. And so that in our weakness, we would not despair. Rather see the depth of the mercy of God in giving us Jesus freely. My friends, Jesus is the full package deal. He is the great high priest. 
He's the greatest high priest. He's entirely better. He's utterly different and distinct from any of the Levitical priests. What our author is going to begin to show us today is that this is the priest who your soul desperately needs. We're going to see in this passage that Jesus is your Mechilzedekian high priest. Now, you might not think about that very often. I don't wake up and think, I just love that I have a Mechilzedekian high priest on my behalf. But it's a point that the author is going to make, in fact, that Jesus is not a Levitical priest, he's a Mechilzedekian high priest, and we're going to unpack that. We're going to see what that means today. And this morning, we're going to worship Jesus as our Mechilzedekian high priest. Read the text with me, Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset by weakness. Because of this, he himself, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son and today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers And supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what was suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This morning, the outline is very simple. You're to worship Jesus, your Mechilzedekian high priest. First, because Jesus is appointed. Just like the Levitical priests, he's been appointed by God the Father. Uh, Really that he would be, unlike them, not a temporary priest, but a priest forever. Second, because Jesus is compassionate. This is that side of patience that we're going to talk about, and we're going to see why he is so patient and long-suffering with us, having suffered himself. And then finally, Jesus is mediator. He brings you eternal salvation. Uh, Jesus did not come to earth only for his own sake, but for ours, and he was loving us by bringing us to God. So why is this passage here? Why is Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 here? If you remember, after talking about uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ, this author is, is wanting to remind believers to cling to their confession that they have in Jesus. And their temptation is to go back to what is comfortable and familiar in the Old Testament, Mosaic Law, the cultic practice that was still happening in that day, the temple sacrifice, the sights and sounds and smells and everything that was familiar to them. They're tempted to go back to that. And so the other keeps telling them, you do not want to go back to that because you've received something that's much greater that all of that was pointing to, namely Jesus himself. And so thankfully, 
for people like you and me who aren't generally up to speed on the Levitical priesthood, verses 1 through 4 is kind of a review. It's kind of a summary about the Levitical priesthood. We saw that the priests are mediators in verse 1. That's their whole job. They act in behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the whole point of the priest was, you all are sinners. God is holy. You can't access God. And so therefore, God in his grace is going to give you a man, a mediator, that will be the go-between, that will bring you to God. He's going to make sacrifice on your behalf. He's going to pray on your behalf. He's going to minister on your behalf. The idea is that your sin problem would, would leave you unfit. And so the whole idea that God would give a mediator uh, with Aaron back at Sinai when he began to establish Israel and he began to establish the Levitical priesthood is a reminder that you and I need spiritual assistance. We need a helper. And we can't call someone to our aid. We need that helper provided for us. So that's what God was teaching his people. He's the one that appointed the mediator. Remember, it was his plan. It was his design. It was his gift to the people. And so we see even in that, that God had to be the one to intervene. God had to be the one out of his mercy to pity his people by giving them a man that would be the go-between, that would be the mediator. God had to act. And then... We saw, secondly, that these priests were compassionate toward weak worshipers. Verses 2 and 3, as we review, he deals gently with ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset by weakness. We talked about that. That word for beset by weakness would be, uh, it it cloaks him. He dons it. And we said it would be like wearing a lead garment. When you go to the x-ray and you have to put on that lead apron, that's how he would wear sin and weakness. The priest himself. Every day he was beset himself by the struggle with the flesh. Every day he was struggling with that besetting weakness. And so he was able to be gracious to those he'd minister to because he would say, I like you am in the flesh. I've experienced this weakness too. Literally to those who are ignorant and wayward, those who are untaught, the neophytes. Those who are wayward, those who go astray. And so if you say, you know what, sometimes I feel like I'm a spiritual beginner I feel like I'm still in spiritual training pants. I feel like I'm re-enrolled in spiritual kindergarten over and over and over. Well, that's, that's understandable. That's exactly why a priest existed, to help the ignorant and the wayward, those who would continually go astray. And so priests were gentle. They were to be compassionate. Think about that dealing with sin over and over and over. It would be a temptation to become jaded, and yet the priest was to be reminded that in his own struggle, he could then deal patiently with God's people because he himself was beset by weakness. Thinking about that idea of of weakness besetting someone last night, we were reading the story of Elijah in our home, and it never ceases to blow me away that here's this man who is boldly confronting King Ahab. And that's a terrifying thing. You're confronting the, the ruler of the country. And, and Ahab's trying to blame him for the rain. And he's saying, actually, you're the reason why there's no rain. I'm not the troubler. You are. He calls him to account. And he says, all right, let's get all the prophets together. We're going to have a showdown. And he's saying, go ahead and slaughter hundreds of prophets of Baal. Fearless. That takes some guts. And then all it takes is... One woman saying, I'm going to kill you. And suddenly his fear of man or fear of woman, right? 
creeps up and he's instantly terrified and in despair. And so you just see the the weakness there of of someone who on the one hand is standing trusting the Lord so faithfully one day and seeing God work powerfully and then at the next moment, man, feet of clay, such a struggle, faith to failure. And so these earthly priests understood that just like you and I understand it, that this is our condition. And the problem with the priest was as comforting as it was that he was weak, verse 3, he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the other people. So on the one hand, it's kind of comforting that he knows my weakness, that he's a sinner too. On the other hand, it's not comforting because he has to actually offer sacrifice for himself. He couldn't actually atone for me. At the end of the day, he's nothing more than a mere man. And so there'd be a sense in which Aaron was just a little bit too relatable. <laughs> you, want, you want a priest that's kind of relatable, that understands your weakness, but not so relatable that he's in the same boat you are. And so we saw that priests are mediators. Verse 1, they were compassionate. Verses 2 and 3. Thirdly, they were appointed. This is just the review from last time we were here because it's been a while. Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So we saw that even Moses, for all the ways he was used by God, didn't step into the role of priest because God designated Aaron to be the priest and Aaron's sons over Israel. And so this is something that's not self-appointed. Judges 17 talks about when uh, Micah went and found the, the priest that he was going to bring into his home and the Lord's uh, utter uh, casting away of that uh, to in, the, in human pride think that you could somehow manipulate God through the priesthood. And so what this author has done is in those first four verses, he's just reminded us of what God did over all those chapters in bringing human priests that were descendants of Aaron to minister to God's people. He gave them a mediator. He gave them a compassionate priest. He was the one that appointed them. And so now what the author is going to do is, in verses 5 through 10, is he's going to take that same formula, and like a hinge, he's just going to flip it down. He's going to go in reverse order, and he's going to say, Jesus is appointed, just like Aaron was appointed. Jesus is compassionate, understands your weakness, just like the Levitical priest did. And finally, Jesus is a mediator, just like those other priests. But here's the deal. In the midst of that, there's some things that are the same. And then thankfully, there's some things that are radically different. And so although there's continuity, although there's similarities between these two priesthoods, what we find is that this priest, who's a Machilzadekian priest, is far better than anything that you could have ever gotten in the Levitical priesthood. And so that's the comparison. And so right now, our first point is to worship Jesus, your Machilzadekian high priest, because he's appointed as your high priest forever. Really, not just a priest, but a king priest. Verse 5 begins, so also Christ. So also Christ. Just as Aaron didn't say, Hi, I would like to be the guy now to be the priest over Israel. I'm going to appoint myself to that role. So also, in the same way, Jesus Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed. He was appointed, the text says, by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the second time that we've seen this. This is Psalm 2 that's being quoted here by the author of Hebrews. What he's saying is that Jesus Christ was very specifically God's man for the job. 
He was the man of God's own choosing. I want you to think of it this way. God selected Jesus as the high priest who you need. He knew what kind of savior you would need. He knew what kind of high priest you would need. And he said, this is going to be the priest that my people need. I'm going to give them Jesus. I'm going to give them my son to serve them as priest. And when you read this, you immediately see the wonder of God sending his own son. Right? God sent prophets to his people. There's the parable of the vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard keeps sending servants. He keeps sending prophets. They keep killing the prophets, right? The people who, the tenants who are renting the vineyard. And then eventually, what does he say? You know what? I'm going to send them my son. Perhaps they will listen to him. See, God had given prophets to his people. He'd given priests to his people. And yet now he gives them his beloved son. And what's unmistakable in the in the text, is that this is the Father's plan. He's the one that appointed Jesus to this role. Jesus is responding as the one who was sent. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal in their personhood, and yet they're distinct in their roles. And so we, here we see the Son sent by the Father on a mission to accomplish salvation that would bring glory to the Father through his own humiliation and suffering. God the Father was the one that appointed him to this. So Jesus spent his life, as we know from the scriptures, not in glory. He had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. He was not a man who was impressive in the flesh. So we read in John 1, he was in fact rejected by his own people that he came to. They had no regard for him. So he wasn't attractive, even his popularity was always superficial. Uh, Even in his public ministry, there was very few that actually stood with him and believed who he was. Yet he was appointed, he was hand-selected by God. He was our chosen high priest. And Jesus, over and over and over throughout the Gospels, particularly John, speaks about being sent. I mean, we have it recorded dozens of times. You wonder how much he actually said it. Surely he said it more times than what's recorded. But in John 5.30, he said, I can do nothing of my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but what? The will of the one who sent me. John 7.28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I haven't come of my own accord. I'm not self-sent on this mission. Rather, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. John 5.36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I could spend 10 more minutes reading two verses about Jesus being sent on a mission by the Father to accomplish the Father's good plan. And and when you see this, you have to realize that Jesus glories in submission to the Father. Jesus delights in submission. He delights in having been appointed to this task. 
I mean, I can't read that without my cheeks burning and thinking about how much I rail at times against God's authority in my life that I don't want to submit to. And the idea of submitting to another man or a woman, whew, it's hard enough to submit to the Lord. Now I've got to submit to a, a sinful human being. My friends, Jesus, part of his glory and why we worship him is because he delights in submitting to the Father. He, he is worshipped by us because he was sent on a mission. He was appointed to this role. And so the idea that's happening here is that, that the divine son was sent by the father, appointed to be the high priest. He said, my people need a priest. Aaron has failed. I knew that was going to happen from the beginning, but, but like the training bike, that's brought them along. So now I can send them the real thing, which is going to be my beloved son. And I'm going to send him to be their priest. I'm going to send him to be their mediator. I'm going to send him to be the one to bring them back to me. So verse 6. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you read that and you think, okay, let's just be honest. It feels a little bit random. Right? Melchizedek is not exactly a primary figure in the Old Testament. Uh, I have yet to see a class offered a 13-week study on the life of Melchizedek. Right? You get a, a paragraph in Genesis, one verse in the Psalms, and then Hebrews. That's it. Guys mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Once in Genesis, once in Psalm 110, and then all of a sudden he appears seemingly kind of out of nowhere here in Hebrews. Minor character hardly worth mentioning. Well, Melchizedek came hundreds of years before the Levitical priesthood was established. And in fact, I'm only going to mention him today because the author begins to introduce the topic today. Then he's going to say, I have a problem. I want to tell you more, but you're dull of hearing. And then he's going to circle back to this later on in chapter six and seven. He's going to explain more fully what he means. So we're going to just introduce the idea today. But the idea here is that Melchizedek uh, is, is uh, being connected to the Christ by David in Psalm 110. So what you read in your Bible where it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is a direct quote from the lips of David. David is quoting Psalm 10. We already looked at Psalm 10 earlier in Hebrews. You say, why is this here? What's the connection? What's happening? Well, he's going to explain this further, but Psalm 110 is all about the anointed of God coming as king. Psalm 110 is all about Jesus, the king. You read Psalm 110 and you read things like He's going to make his enemies a footstool. That he has a mighty scepter. That he is a, a ruling king who is judging. And so in the, the middle of this messianic psalm that's all about the kingly rule of Jesus, you kind of just have inserted in the middle, oh, by the way, he's going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That doesn't seem like anything to us because we've heard it. But the monarchy and the priesthood were not joined together in the minds of a Jew. God did not originally have those things joined. David did a couple of things related to priestly work on behalf of Israel, but he was not a priest. And so here what we see is, is God joining together the idea that this Savior who I'm sending is going to have all of the authority as the divine son. He is going to be the king and the ruler. And he's also going to be a mediator for my people. 
See, why is that comforting? Of all we heard about was God the King. That's mostly a scary message, not a comforting message, is it not? You remember what happened when, when Job began to interact with the Almighty and suddenly saw the glory of God? Man, I should have, I should have just put, I need to put a hand over my mouth right now. I spoke about things I didn't understand. I've been humbled. Right? What's happened when Isaiah sees the Lord? I'm on my face and I'm suddenly aware of my sinfulness and I should not be speaking on behalf of the Lord because I'm wretched. Right? What happens when Moses encounters the glory of God? The entire nation is trembling and doesn't want to get anywhere near the mountain because of the glory of God, because he's holy and he's set apart and he's mighty. And so if all we had was God the king, then it's just a scary message every week about how great the king is and how we could never approach him because he's transcendent. And yet here what we read is that transcendent king came low. And so he's actually a priest who's powerful and patient to bring salvation. See, what David saw coming was, was this Messiah having all of the authority of a king and yet relating to his people as a gracious priest. And so this priest is a priest like Melchizedek, of the order of Melchizedek. He's not the offspring of Melchizedek, but he's the same kind of priest as Melchizedek. And so the idea now is that this priest is a king priest. Text says that he will live forever. You see the contrast now from the Levitical priesthood? Right, can you imagine you're in Israel? Every year you go up to the temple for the Day of Atonement. And uh, Ben is there. And Ben is your, your favorite high priest. You've, you've had a good relationship with him. He's ministered to your family. He's heard you confess a lot of sin. And suddenly you show up that year and Ben's not there anymore. What happened to Ben? Ben died. And now we have a new priest. And we're starting all over in that relationship with some human man that's first making atonement for his own sins and then making atonement for me. You're not banking any hope on that man. This high priest that comes is a priest who lives forever. That means his entire work for you, his intercession would never fail. He's never going to tire. He's never going to be tempted. You can't kill him. You can't break him. You can't burn him out. He is a high priest forever. And so you say, that's the kind of priest that I need. I need a priest that lives forever. My soul's going to endure forever. Certainly I can't put my hope in a mortal man. And so Jesus comes now as this divine king priest. The king who is sovereign and powerful. So you, so you have comfort in that. And then the, the priest whom you can draw near to. And my friends, if, if you think I'm just bringing that out of nowhere, all of this section ends in chapter 10, verse 23, and it's the exclamation point on all the talk of the priestly ministry of Christ. And what does the author say then? Let us draw near with full assurance, full confidence. Why? Because we have a new and living way through this king priest. That's the point. That you can draw near to God because you have a high priest king who will live forever. And he was designed by God for you. He was given to you by God for a gift. My friends, and you think about the fact that Jesus is appointed as your king priest forever. I just want you to say, God did that. God did all of it. It was his gift to you. 
Not only that, but Jesus, secondly, is not just appointed as our king priest forever, but he's compassionate. This begins to to unearth a little bit more about what happens in his priestly ministry toward us. See, he's compassionate because he has suffered himself. And as we said, he's omniscient. He's God. He didn't need to learn anything in that sense. But we have the comfort that he actually experienced humanity. And now he ministers to us as one who can say, I know. I've been there. I know. See, human priests are a comfort to weak people but their weakness limits them. Divine priest is a comfort because he's not limited by weakness. And so Jesus comes and he is sympathetic toward us. Oftentimes we're tempted to think that because Jesus is God, he skated through difficulty. He just kind of floated along through it. He kind of had the ability to maneuver all the landmines and it didn't actually experience stepping on them like we do. My friends, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that, that Jesus became truly human in taking on flesh. And the passage here says that in those days of his flesh, so after he took on humanity and became truly human, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Tamu was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reference. My friends, Jesus suffered. We know that he prayed a lot. He had a perfect prayer life. Thank God that's credited to your account. So however you feel about your prayer life, you trust in Christ. You have the the righteousness of him. You have credit right now to your account, a perfect prayer life. Right, but Luke 5, 16, he would withdraw often to desolate places, places to pray. Opening to Mark's gospel, he's going out while it's still dark in the middle of the night to be alone to pray, to commune with the Father. Luke 6, 12, and in those days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. So we find as a man, a God-man, dependent upon the Father, regularly presenting his requests in prayer. Jesus offered up these prayers. It says, with loud cries and tears. Wailing. Is literally what that means. He was praying with great anguish of soul at times. That was the depth that he felt sorrow. And when you think of Jesus, he's not some soft man that's afraid of pain. He's not a whining coward. But he's a true man. And he knows the struggle of humanity and trusting the Lord in the midst of sorrow. And the greatest thing that he's concerned about, of course, is the cross, not because of the physical torture, but because of what it's going to mean to bear the weight of sinners. Like how one commentator put it. He said, to interpret Christ's loud cries and tears is indicating a collapse of his resolution. As the hour of crisis arrives, not only portrays him as less admirable in this respect, but also is inconsistent with the character of him to whom, with one voice, the evangelists bear testimony. 
In other words, they're saying that it's when Jesus cried, particularly in Gethsemane, that if possible, this cup would be removed from him. It wasn't that suddenly he was not resolved to do the Father's will. Rather, it's a testimony to the greatness of the anguish of soul that he's going through, that he's pleading ultimately to his Father to remove this, if at all possible. What we find is that Christ was resolute. He was resolved. He faced this as a sinless man. He wasn't trying to avoid the Father's plan, looking for an alternative in any sinful way. In fact, Luke 9.51 says that he set his his gaze like flint on Jerusalem. What does that mean? He knew he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to be a substitute for sin. He knew what it was going to cost him. We try to imagine it and we can't. And as he smelled that bitter poison coming to him in that cup of God's wrath, He was terrified of it, and rightly so, because he understood what it would mean. And so Gethsemane would have been the culmination. I don't think this text is saying only the prayer in Gethsemane, because it says in the days, plural, of his flesh, he offered up prayers, plural, and supplications, plural. And so I believe this is talking about throughout his life, at times he would have great anguish of soul, and ultimately that would have culminated in Gethsemane as he saw the cross coming. meant incomprehensible suffering for Jesus. It's hard for us to fathom. We try and poke a few sticks at it theologically to understand, but we don't know what it actually would have been like to to bear the weight of sin, particularly in all of his perfections and the fellowship that he knew with the Father. But I want you to think about it this way. There's no higher degree of undesirable circumstances that you could ever imagine on this earth than facing the wrath of God for humanity. Right? I mean, I have a list of undesirable circumstances. Right? Cutting my fingernails too short. Right? That's on the list. I mean, you go down the list, like the things that are kind of annoying, and then you get to the things that are really terrifying. But the greatest thing you could put on that list would be to face the wrath of God to absorb sin for the world. So what does Jesus do when he faces undesirable circumstances that are unimaginably difficult? He offers up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He goes back to his father. See, he knows that his father is the one who would be able to save him from death. And the text says that he was heard because of his reverence. So because he was trusting the father, the father heard him. Now, the father heard his prayer. What did the father do? He didn't deliver him from the cross. He still had to face death. He still actually had to be pinned on that tree. He had to be killed. It was the only way, and yet we hear that the Father here, we read the Father did hear his prayer in that time. My friends, Jesus wasn't delivered from death. He didn't get immediate relief. And yet what we see here is him laying it all down before the Father and saying, I submit to your will. There's an attitude of posture. I'm in grief and sorrow. This is my difficulty. He's instructing us in our prayer life to trust that whether God answers in the way that you want and bringing relief does not indicate whether or not he's heard your prayer. Jesus did not get relief. It did not mean that the Father had not heard him. 
My friends, this is the kind of priest that you and I need. And what's unfathomable is what the author writes in verse 9. It's one of the most perplexing truths in, in Scripture concerning the person of Jesus. Even though he was a son, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There's a, a play on words in the original there. He learned emothen and he suffered epothen. What the author's doing is he's, he's linking these two things together and saying the suffering and the obedience are connected. There's a connection between them. Now when it says here that, that he learned obedience, um, children in the room, right? your parents probably, just guessing, are teaching you obedience. They want you to learn obedience and you have the problem of being disobedient. Right? We can all relate to that. Everyone in the room was a disobedient little kid at some point. And you have gotten older and we're still kind of disobedient. But when we think of learning obedience, we think of having disobedience trained out of us and, and now learning to submit. That is not what happened with Jesus. Children, Jesus did not have to go from being disobedient to learn how to be obedient. Rather, he had to learn how to be obedient in bigger and greater and harder ways. So he started out in little ways learning to be obedient. And then he grew in his obedience to bigger and bigger challenges, bigger ways of trusting the Lord, things that were harder and harder. And so Jesus, even though he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. Now just to time out here for a moment. I love what this passage teaches us because it's an important reminder regarding obedience. I don't know a believer who does not want to grow in obedience. Right? That's the heart of a Christian. Yet how do we typically want to grow in obedience? Listen, Lord, I think I would, I would probably learn to be the most obedient poolside at the Ritz-Carlton just for, for infinity, okay? Um, Give me, give me some, some better circumstances. I promise I'll obey. Right? That's how we think. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. It was through the things he suffered. You understand that there was an element of learning to trust God through suffering that you can't learn without the suffering. In other words, that was what made the obedience so difficult was that it began to cost him more and more. It was harder and harder to trust the Lord because there was difficulty associated with it. And so, so often we'll look at perhaps a mature saint in the Lord and we'll think, man, that person is so godly, they're so mature, I want that godliness. And then we'll think, but, but not what it took in their life to get them there. I want the outcome without the suffering. I want the obedience and the maturity without actually having to learn to trust the Lord when it's difficult. Think about for Jesus, his entire life he was completely misunderstood by others. And just go back and think about Luke 4, that interaction with his parents. When he's in the temple and he's honoring his father and he's misunderstood by mom and dad and they're chastising him, the whole family was involved. Then you think about as he's growing older, every time that he suffered wrong, not ever having committed a wrong toward anyone. 
And then as his public ministry began to heat up, it just went from there. He was slandered. He was accused of, of dishonoring God, in fact, of blasphemy. He's experienced all manner of, of suffering righteously, and it was through that that he learned over and over and over, you know what? I'll leave my reputation with the Father. I'll leave the Father to be the one who vindicates me. I'm going to trust the Father's timeline. I'm going to trust the Father's plan. I'm going to trust the outcome that the Father is working right now. Over and over and over, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. My friends, is that not such an encouragement to you? That's an encouragement to me. To be reminded that suffering is actually the training program that the Lord would put us in in bringing about maturity and obedience. You can take comfort that Jesus has been tempted. He's been tempted by Satan. He's experienced loneliness. He's experienced every challenge that you could imagine. And he kept trusting himself. And so when he comes to your aid now as your Savior, he knows he's sympathetic. He knows what it's like to suffer. He spent nights crying out to the Lord with great anguish of heart in tears. And so Jesus is... You're Mekilzadekian high priest. He's been appointed as your king priest forever. He's compassionate, having suffered himself. And finally, Jesus is mediator. Jesus is mediator. And as mediator, he is bringing us eternal salvation. Look at how this passage ends. Verse 9, and being made perfect. That doesn't mean that he was made morally perfect. It's the idea that the training program was complete. So having gotten the certificate at the end, having finished the class, having lived 33 years entrusting himself to the Father, having gotten the completion certificate by by being made perfect, that's the idea, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen, this does not mean that obedience is the basis of your standing before God. That's a heresy. Obedience does not contribute to your standing before God. That is a damning teaching. Rather, the obedience testifies that, in fact, you belong to him, that you've received salvation. So there's not those who've received salvation that don't have Jesus as Lord and Master. And so all those who obey him are all those who are his own. Not perfectly, of course, but they do characteristically in their life obey this Lord. And so as you see this description... The author is saying that there is only one source of eternal salvation. There's only one mediator. There's only one way to get access to God. There's only one way that you and I could ever be helped in our condition. And it is through the man, Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus offers you free eternal salvation simply by trusting in him. This is the work of our powerful and patient high priest. And so we see in verse 10, he is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why is that? Because he's of a totally different origin. He's divine. He wasn't born through the bloodlines of Aaron. He had a different accomplishment. He didn't come and bring sacrifices for himself. Rather, he sacrificed himself. And through this priesthood, you get entirely different benefits, which is not merely the the expiation of your sins at the Day of Atonement and relief for that year. You get eternal salvation through that mediator. 
See, this is the end game of the priesthood. It was to prepare God's people to understand the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be encouraged not to look at our own weakness and frailty as if that somehow disqualifies us from being savable by God. But rather it causes us to glory in the mercy that we've received through his son Jesus Christ that there would be no other way that we could be saved. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, thank you for our king priest Jesus. Thank you Lord that you saw fit to have mercy on us. Or do we read the testimony here, just a few brief verses that we didn't even plumb the depths of in terms of the life of Christ and we're astounded at his obedience? Or does constant dependence on you is trust and then to think that all of that is granted to us on our account by faith? Uh, Lord, it's astounding. And so we don't have much to say to you other than uh, that we are grateful Lord, that we want our lives to bear witness and testimony to your greatness and to the depth of your mercy. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.